welcome to episode 113 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Now, for you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. It's a little time for some... It's a little time? It's time for a little heresy cast. It's time to remember how to podcast. <laughs> it's been a long week. It has been a long week. I think for everybody. I mean, maybe it's just that time of year. I don't know what it is. It's universally a long week. And we're about to go after some heresy. So that's we either are. like super exhausting or super empowering. It's a little bit of both. Yeah. So let's let's have a pop quiz right off the bat. Oh, no. If I were to ask you, and this, this came up. So, okay, let me preface this. Okay. Um, there are two things that happen when we're recording a contentious topic. Either the topic is a result of something I saw online, or it just happens at the same time for some reason. And this is one of those things that just happened at the same time, and I'm not sure why. But if I were to ask you, is it the case that Mary is the mother of God? What would you say? (laughs) I... See, here's the thing. I thought we were going to talk about this at some point. I didn't think you were just going to like throw it out there, like right so out of the gate, straight you're getting, up. You're turning bright red. Yeah, well, because so because this is the thing with Nestorius, right? In terms yep. of he basically repudiated that Marianism or that Marian basic uh, conception that she was the the mother of God because he felt she was only the mother of Christ. So this is like a right. loaded question. It's tricky. It is sort of a loaded question, but it's also one of those things that the church figured out like 1,500 years ago, and we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Well, that's very true as well. So in case our listeners didn't pick up on it, we're talking about Nestorianism this month on our Heresy Cast. So Jesse, can you give us a rough shot definition of Nestorianism? Well, can I, before I do that, can, and speaking of things like happening like contemporaneously, which, what, what were you talking about? Just that there's something else going on right now that you've come across that's kind of yeah, feeds into just this? Out of nowhere, a thread popped up in the Reform Pub that's become like a firestorm of people just not realizing what church history has given us. Oh, and it's specifically about, is Mary the mother of God? Right, right. Which is, is not only is it a Nestorian impl- implication, it's the Nestorian implication. Right. It was like literally the question that kicked off the whole controversy. Well, yes, that's true, actually. So I'm glad you kind of brought that up because in terms of things like happening at the same time in kind of a strange way, I woke up this morning and like most people went to Twitter because I guess that's what I do and was just flipping through. And I came across something as well that's kind of a tangent, but is all related, like lest we forget that basically heresy is among us. All the time in some form Everywhere. or another. Always. Always. I saw this tweet, which is not something that was necessarily in my feed, but something somebody had responded to. And it's not surprising the source, but I was just like, man, it's it's everywhere. And so let me read you just this quick, quick tweet from Rachel Held Evans. So oh, not, no. not, surprising, not surprising like the source of this, but in terms of like, this is in some degree like the zeitgeist, this is like the conversation that's happening. What we all need to realize this kind of stuff is just out there and people are drawn to it to discuss it. But this is the kind of stuff that's being just thrown out as kind of a lightning rod or a forceful conversation. So here's just quickly what she writes. She says, quote, it's fear of Jesus's humanity, I think, 
that keeps us from interpreting the story of the sinker Phoenician slash Canaanite woman as a story about a man changing his mind about his racial bias when confronted with the humanity and chutzpah of another person. But that's a tricky one. End of quote. Wow. So like this, it, that this is somewhat related actually, but yeah. it, that's just to say you're right. It, it's one of those things. Maybe we should be surprised that these conversations pop up and they always have or tend to go in a direction that gives them like a little bit of heretical flavor. So this is why talking about this stuff is super practical and really pastoral. Yeah. Yeah. And and so here's, here's the tricky thing about this controversy is that um, all, all of the heretical controversies hinge on, um, on one level, precise definitions and particularities of language. Right on. Um, there's not a single... Um, there's not a single controversy in the early church that does not revolve around somebody using a word or a term or phrase, usually from the Bible, in a way that is not orthodox, um, that, that takes the same word and uses it in a different way. That's, that's across the board. And this is one of those cases where it actually kind of goes the other direction, right. where we're talking about language that's not biblical language, but it's, it's language that the church developed to express a biblical truth in a systematic way. So we have, we have exegetical theology, which is there to um, look at the, the words of Scripture and to draw meaning out of the text, out of the, the exegetical foundation of Scripture. And then we have systematic theology, which is designed to take the whole of Scripture and synthesize it into a coherent system of doctrine. And when we're talking about systematic theology, we necessarily have to use language that's not in the Bible, because if we're just using biblical language, then we're not synthesizing anything. We're not we're not taking passages and setting them next to each other. Sometimes you can take a passage and like juxtapose different verses to create like a systematic theology, but there's nowhere in the Bible that specifically spells out explicitly or even really a single place that spells out by good and necessary consequence the the interplay and the relationship between Christ's human and his divine nature. So we have to take from all of scripture and we have to synthesize that together. And the church did that and came up with this concept of the theotokos or the, the God bearer or the mother of God. And they applied this term to the Virgin Mary, not to say something about Mary necessarily, right. but to say something about the one whom she bore. And that that's really important for us to remember as we sort of unpack this controversy a little bit. Yeah. So we got so excited that we, I didn't even give a definition because we just jumped right into what is going on in our world. But yeah, it, so in my mind, and probably this is, I would say a kind of a classical approach, but there are, we're talking about a Christological error in, right. and that's what Nestorianism is. But there are three classes of Christological errors, at least in my mind. There would be those that deny the humanity of Christ, those that deny the deity, and then those that deny the union of the two natures. So right. like kind of writ large, just kind of like the, the broad scope of the land. And so Nestorianism emphasizes the disunity of the human and the divine natures of Christ. So this would be, we can think of it, I guess, in opposition to like the hypostatic union, for instance. Right. So we've got, according to at least the Nestorians, we've got Christ essentially exists as two persons sharing one body. And lest, again, that we think that we're not prone to the same type of errors, I was kind of thinking through the way that sometimes I would approach something, a question in terms of Christ, or trying to, at least in my own mind, reconcile, let's say, behavior 
or something from the Gospels. And you had said something a couple of podcasts back, which I think was like a really fantastic point. And that is a question about Jesus is really a question of understanding his two natures, right? We have to kind of understand both of them in such a way that there is cohesion and not separation. But I think because of who we are as people and our kind of finite understanding and our experience in the world that is, you know, very precise and well delineated, we have this tendency toward kind of an historian frame of mind because I don't know how many times I've heard said or even thought myself, you know, when we're looking at the gospels, for instance, and Jesus remarks that not even the son knows the hour essentially of the return that we easily maybe even just think to ourselves, if not say out explicitly, well, he's speaking from like his human side, like his human nature. That's just his human side. And we sometimes will parse out even, you know, not with any malicious nature, but we'll parse out these two natures in such a way that we really do separate them. And then we're kind of putting two in one body. Right. And so this is what's interesting to me about this heresy in particular is that we got to remember that like heresies don't often come about because there's like some random dude like sketching a plan somewhere and twisting his mustache with some kind of like evil intent. And this heresy began as this reaction to the assertion of like the Arians that the divine son of God had just taken a human body and that the incarnation didn't really, in, in the incarnation, he didn't really become man. So here's like right. Nestorius trying to uphold the reality of Christ's humanity by claiming that Jesus was really two persons in one, the divine son of God, and then the human Christ. So it, it's the separation, but it, it's almost like it's coming, I don't want to say it's coming from a good place, but it's coming from a place that now has good intentions, so to speak, but it's totally separated and divorced from scripture. And like you said, right. it can get tricky because we can't necessarily go to like a single explanation, but we have in the scriptures enough to draw us a complete picture, so to speak, of the fact that there is uh, what the son of God, who the son of God is in terms of his nature and his, his nature and his person. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and it bears saying before we get too far into this, that there is some scholarly debate as to whether or not it's fair to ascribe the view that becomes known as Nestorianism to Nestorius himself. True. Um, and so Nestorianism, if we we step back a little bit from the specifics, is really an error which um, it sort of confuses what the incarnation actually is. So the orthodox position on the incarnation is that the eternal divine logos, the second person of the Trinity, who is complete in in and of himself, complete as a subsistence of the divine nature, he took to himself a second complete nature that did not itself constitute a person. And so, so you have a range of Nestorian error, which may go all the way from actually two persons that are somehow united with some of the later, um, later Nestorian followers hold or something that's probably a little closer to what Nestorius himself held, which is, is that there's, um, there's a shift in the agency of the second person such that when we talk about the Christ, we're talking about some sort of like, um, presentation that is a combination of the two that is distinct from the the presentation or the face of the divine logos. So if you think of like, um, if you have one planet and you have another planet and they're orbiting each other, the center of gravity is somewhere in that space between the, the, between the two planets. That's kind of what Nestorius was getting at is that the, the fusion of these two, uh, personal natures creates this sort of center of personality, which is outside of either of those natures. 
Right. So, so Nestorianism as a whole is a very complicated subject. Um, for the purposes of this podcast, I think it's sufficient to just talk about this in kind of the classically understood um, two persons Nestorianism, um, or in any sense, a, a theology which separates the divine natures beyond what the biblical um, the biblical testimony gives us. Yeah, that's right on. Because I think at base, the all. And this is kind of like a Trinitarian heresy, I guess, if I can right. bleed it into that kind of camp as well, that it is, you're right on, because it's the result of mixing the eternal and the temporal. And there's this confusion of the creator and creature distinction. So in Nestorianism, as I see it, we have the deity of Christ where it's not properly related to his humanity. And there's this false conception of the relationship between the eternal and the temporal, right. which in Christ are neither confused nor divided. And that is you know, honestly, crazy to consider. I mean, we really can only go so far in trying to understand that. But at some point, like we've said before, we kind of submit to the scriptures. We submit to the goodness of God and what he's given us to understand and the capabilities he's given us so that we might process that information. But we really have to yield to it at some point. Right. And mixing up the relationship of the temporal and the eternity in Christ is, in essence, an offshoot of mixing up the temporal and the eternal in the Trinity. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we're going to cover a lot of ground in this. And it feels strange to have to do this as frequently as we do, but we have to kind of put out our standard, we love R.C. Sproul disclaimer. Because <laughs> unfortunately, True. you know, Dr. Sproul was a man, he was, um, he is a man, but he, he was a hero of our faith, but all of our heroes have uh, clay feet and they all have blind spots and there's areas of their theology that, that frankly, they just don't get right. Nobody's a hundred percent right. And Dr. Sproul, unfortunately, for a lot of reasons, um, some of them were very good impulses. Some of them I think were just poor ways of, of speaking. And when you speak a certain way for so long, all of a sudden you start thinking in ways that lines up with that. He hit Christology was a weak area for him. And so we talked about this when we talked about the second commandment, for example, um, we talked about how he, he rejected the reform view of the second commandment because he thought that it, it constituted a combination of the two natures. But really what he was doing is he was separating the nature such that you could represent the human nature without also representing the divine nature, which separates those two in saying that, um, the, the incarnation is separable enough that we can consider the human nature of Christ utterly a, apart from the divine nature of Christ, the divine person. Um, we saw the same thing when we talked about impeccability, right? He right. talked about how the, the human nature was the agent of the incarnation, and thus the human nature had to be able to sin, otherwise it couldn't properly represent us. Well, all of this revolves in the same kind of space of taking that that human nature of Christ and somehow separating it off to make it its own willing agent, its own agent, its own thing that can be represented apart from the uh, apart from the divine nature. And that's really what this error gets down to. So there are a whole host of ways that this kind of plays itself out in evangelicalism. But I want to take a few minutes just to kind of outline the controversy in really, really broad strokes. So we have in the 430s um, and, and the time preceding that, we have this, this rise of this term theotokos, which, as I said, means God-bearer or mother of God. And it was used um, primarily in the church to delineate the fact that the same person who was eternally begotten of the Father 
was the same singular person who was temporally begotten of Mary. So so it's it's there to secure the unity of the person of the second person of the Trinity. Right. Um, specifically to guard against the idea that somehow a second nature, uh, a second personal nature or a second person was taken on in the incarnation. Nestorius saw that this language was being abused in certain ways. So it's not the case. Sometimes you hear this from um, overzealous um, people who want to try to defend the use of this term. It's not the case that there wasn't Marian devotion going on. It's not the case that that was not one of Nestorius' concerns. But it was not his primary concern. It was kind of what alerted him to the use of this term. And it was part of the reason why the backlash was so severe against him was because this was sort of striking at a popular sort of cultish religion that was cropping up in the church, this Mary worship that that obviously continues to grow and continues to expand. But his primary concern was that he believed that this phrase was making it so the divine nature itself had an origin in time. So it was kind of like actually like the polar opposite of Arianism is he was concerned that this somehow rendered God himself, the divine nature, including the father and the spirit, somehow temporal. So he said, well, no, it's not. It's not the um, it's not that Mary is the God bearer. She's the Christ bearer. And that's where this gets into that thing I was talking about earlier. What he was saying is that the person that he that that she bore was this sort of like dual person that was a a personhood or a, a, a prosopon that existed outside of the divine nature in that sort of new center of gravity. But he was saying, no, no, it was Christ that was born of Mary, not God. So what this resulted in was a controversy where people were saying, wait a second, Christ is God. And to deny that the son of Mary is God is to deny that the son of Mary is God. So it's, it's this controversy that started in one place. And this is similar to the Arian controversy. It started in one place with one concern. And as the church started to look into it and try to sort of account for it, it expanded to other issues to envelop other problems. There's a tie-in with Pelagianism. There's all sorts of other stuff that's going on in this controversy. But what happens then is in the Council of Ephesus in 431, the church declares, at the same time as, as condemning Pelagianism, which is not unimportant, the church declares that the proper way to understand the incarnation is that the, the single person of Christ was fully God and fully man, and that that single person was indeed born of Mary according to humanity. Now, when we get to the definition of Chalcedon in 451, um, that's an expansion of this thought. And so they hammered out some of the details of how that works. But this was really crystallized at Ephesus in 431. And again, you're, what we're seeing here is in some ways, like it's he's, Nestorius was trying to push back against what he thought was abusive language. Right. So again, like I think actually we're all prone to kind of this error naturally because we want to understand things by way of separation and compartmentalism. Right. And what's interesting, unlike some of the other heresies that we talked about, the defect in Nestorianism was not its view of the two natures of Christ, which we've addressed in other heresies, but it was actually in view of his person, like you're saying. So instead of blending the two natures into a single self-consciousness, Nestorianism basically places them alongside each other with nothing more than like maybe a moral or sympathetic union between them. And that has its own dangerous outworkings. But I know what's interesting is like this one I see pop up everywhere, I think. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it pops up in a way where it is the foundation 
though we of, of some kind of behavior or outworking or expression, but we don't even know or see or realize that it's the the foundation. So like you and I would probably say, tis the season for second commandment violations, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> We're entering that time of year. And I, I would say, like we talked about before at length, like I think everybody should just as a matter of personal conscience and conviction, really study and try to understand what that means for us and how we live our lives and the images that we use and what we put before our eyes. Right. That's for each one, I think, to really sort out under the graciousness and the conviction of God himself. But what we see here is that that's really, that really is, I think, an outworking of kind of an historian from a mind at best. Right. At worst, it's something much worse because we're actually creating an idol that we believe represents in some way uh, like the the full the full divinity of Christ in an image, but at best right. it's Nestorian, right? Yeah, yeah, and and I mean with with that particular question, there's two ways to answer why it might be okay to make uh, images of Jesus. The first is the Roman Catholic version, which is just we change the rule, right? We we. Yeah. We looked at the incarnation and we decided that the rule does not apply anymore. And that was decided at the Council of Nicaea. Right? We do what That's we want. enshrined in their catechism. So I'm not even misrepresenting them there. I might be exaggerating a little bit, but more or less, that's what the catechism no, that, says. That's right it. on. The second option is to say that you're not portraying the divine nature and um, instead you're portraying the human nature only, which, as we said at the top of the show, that's just an historian answer. That, that's just the way it is. And we, we see this same debate come up at Easter time, right? Did God die on the cross? Well, right. yes, God died on the cross. God the Son, according to his humanity, died on the cross. We see the same debate came up when we talked about impeccability. Well, could Christ sin? Well, if his human nature is a distinct willing agent, sure. But since it's not, no, it can't. So we, we run into this all over the place. Honestly, this is a... This is a weird error that sort of creeps its way into all sorts of different areas of systematic theology that we don't we don't always understand. Eschatology, right? Is right. is um, Jesus going to reign temporally or is he going to reign um, as God eternally? Well, the answer is yes. But but when we start to talk like dispensationalism, which really wants to localize the reign of Christ on the Davidic throne in in Jerusalem for the thousand years, to the exclusion of him sitting at the right hand of the Father as the Son of God. Well, that, that is an historianizing impulse that happens in the church. And this is particularly prominent in Western Christianity. Right. Yeah, it's it pops up everywhere. And I think, quite honestly, if if we had chatted maybe five, seven years ago and somebody had asked me about you know images of Jesus, I probably would have given that exact answer. Like, well, the, what we're depicting here is when pressed, I probably would have said, is just the humanity without right. really understanding like the full implication of what's being said there. Because yeah. those things do matter because I think we have a tendency to consider that those are just basically, you know, throwaway observations. Like it, what does it really hurt? How does it really harm? Right. But there is a very real effect, not only in how we think and how we understand, but then we're taking that whether we realize it or not, and we're going into the scriptures and we're kind of eisegeting that perspective into how we understand both the atonement forgiveness, the work of Christ, what his current ministry is, how he relates to us, whether or not we're, how we understand our union with him. All of that is impacted, whether we think or, or believe that it is or not. It truly, truly is. It really shapes us. And I think only when we spend some time to try to understand well, how does the scripture really shape who Jesus is? Because 
as people, as sinful human beings, we really have this tendency to want to make God in our own image. Right. And so I think this is one of the places that we're prone to do that in particular. And so what happens is over time, without being marinating and marinating ourselves in the scripture under the direction of the Holy Spirit and really submitting to what the scripture says, whether or not we understand it, whether or not we can really articulate it without doing that, we're just, we're actually really hurting ourselves. And so this is one of those places where I see it it pop up all the time. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is, this is a really, really important position to really land. And, And it's very difficult. It's very complex theology, but this is a position that if you get this wrong, you get reformed soteriology, reformed worship, reformed ecclesiology, you get all of it wrong. So this this is at the very bottom of the pyramid that we've talked about in systematic theology. Right. Is is if you divide Christ's humanity from his divinity, you lose you lose the way that Christ justifies us. You lose the fact that Christ has provided for our adoption in in his incarnation. You disconnect adoption from the incarnation, which is a major issue. You you lose sight of the fact that it is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us the same way that the Holy Spirit sanctified the humanity of Christ. And by that, I mean Christ as a human was sanctified and set apart uh, by the Holy Spirit. So we we have to understand this theology because we what we don't realize is that um, this understanding of the incarnation— was so baked into the early church. Once we get past 451, and I would say even before that, right? It's not as though this was a brand new theology in 451. If you read Athanasius on the incarnation, he's right in line with what Chalcedon says. So what happens in the early church is you have the mainstream, the the main line of thinking in one of these controversies. Then you have someone who comes in from the side and disrupts that. And the main line has to clarify what it meant. That's very different than the sort of, um, Hegelian understanding that you'll get out of someone like Elaine Pagels or a Bart Ehrman, where it's this milieu of different voices and eventually one comes out as the the victorious one. Athanasius is not saying anything that does not line up 100% with Chalcedonian definition. And so patristic soteriology until maybe like the seven or eight hundreds, maybe, maybe as late as the, the, the 10th century is so baked into this understanding of who Jesus is. Well, then what happens is the Middle Ages happen and all of a sudden soteriology goes haywire. And one of the things that we don't realize, particularly in the Reformed tradition, is that when Calvin is going back to try to understand what the biblical testimony of, of, of soteriology is and what the patristic testimony is, he picks up on these Eastern fathers. So he follows very, very closely to Athanasius. You know, I had a, a Roman Catholic or not a Roman Catholic, an Eastern Orthodox guy that I really respect. I had him tell me one time that John Calvin is what happens if you take Athanasius and you draw a line from Athanasius to Augustine, and then you skip over everything that happened in the Eastern church past like six or 700, past Maximus. And and that's really true. So Calvin jumps backwards prior to where everything starts going haywire in the Eastern and the Western church, and he retrieves... Augustine's uh, justification theology, his understanding of predestination, he retrieves Athanasius's understanding of, of the incarnation, and he synthesizes these and applies the principles of sola scriptura and sola fide to them. And what we get is reformed soteriology. I'm going to unpack that a little bit more, but I, I need to take a breath, I think. <laughs> 
Well, so let's get into that a little bit. Like, let's talk about why it is so important, both in terms of like theologically speaking, but then the practical outworkings of, the, of that theology, that that Christ be one person uh, with these two natures that again are are consummate, but are also not separate. And like you said, gratefully, we're able to stand on those who've gone before us who have been thoughtful in articulating this very thing to try to help us understand. So I'll, while you catch a breath, let me read the Heidelberg Catechism, question 17. And that question reads, why must he in one person be also very God? And the answer is that he might, by the power of his Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. So like when you hear that, What's the first thing that kind of pops out to you that really is the critical piece of why it's so important that he be both? Well, I mean, it says it right there that because he sustains in his humanity, but he sustains by the power of his deity. And so that's this union of the two natures that makes it possible for this single person to be both a sufficient substitute and a suitable substitute. Right. If you lose the humanity, he's not a suitable substitute. If you lose the divinity, he's not a sufficient substitute. So what if we lose this, if we get this get this understanding wrong, we've undercut the whole the whole enterprise of salvation in, in right a on. really significant way. And that's what I don't think people so so people look at like the statement by R.C. Sproul where he says like, well, it was the human nature, it was the human nature of Christ that that the atonement accomplished the atonement. Well, no, like it, it can't be. And so with all due respect to Dr. Sproul and to others at Ligonier that have kind of followed in that line of thinking, it's just not it's not reformed. It's not it's not biblical, but it's not reformed either. It's not the understanding that the reformed confessions have. What he says there contradicts what you just read in the Heidelberg. It contradicts right. major parts of the Westminster Confession. It contradicts, in my opinion, the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian definition. So we have to be careful because, you know, Dr. Sproul was largely trying to combat a latent idea of patripassionism, which understood that the the father suffered on the cross with the son, or that the divine nature suffered on the cross with the son. So he's trying to fight this this heresy on this side, and he swings so far up against that that he ends up on the wrong side of the thing and falls into the ditch on the other side. Now, Doctor Sproul was not a heretic. He he wasn't. He he had some incorrect ways of thinking and some incorrect ways of speaking. But at the end of the day, those were not intentional things on his part. And and as brilliant as he was, I don't think he realized the implications of what he was saying a lot of times. Because when you pushed him, there's a couple of videos where someone kind of presses him a little bit on these issues. And when you press him, he articulated an orthodox Christology in reference to these questions. It's when he was sort of talking off the cuff and when he was sort of like trying to be polemic that he swung into these ways of with these ways of talking and thinking. Right. And I yeah, I get that in a sense. Like I get the right. wanting to parse out the economies of what's happening there in the Trinity. But that usually happens like to our detriment. One of the things I've just really tried to resign myself to is that it seems to me that there's a high correlation to usually like the number of words you use and heresy. Because yeah. there's just a tendency to like over explain or try to go in too deep when sometimes like a, a simple answer that relies on the scriptures is what's most appropriate and most fruitful. And I love what's written here because it's just a sentence, basically a one sentence answer to that question that is really profound. And what I've been kind of meditating on in this answer is just how complex 
the pieces of what we're talking about is and how we just don't often, or at least from my own life, really, I fail to appreciate that both of those natures had to be present and involved in everything that we've been talking about in order for the work of God to be accomplished in all of its fullness. And like you said, when we take one of them out, it's like taking one, it's like talking about a, a one-legged ladder. It, it's impossible for it to exist. Right. And so what's interesting to me is speaking like the power of the deity, like you brought up, here we have the power of the deity in Christ's human nature sustain the wrath of God against sin. So like, think about how crazy that is, for example, for a second. Like if Jesus as our mediator had only been a man and had taken upon himself the burden of God's wrath, he would have been crushed under its weight. I mean, it was right. necessary that he should be possessed of this infinite strength and for that reason to be God so that he could endure an infinite punishment without being right. crushed under it. Like that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And one of the things, you know, this is not fully baked out, so this may change as I study more. But one of the things that I've learned and I'm being impressed by, and this this is a, actually a pretty, like, classically reformed way of thinking, is the the different ways that the, the son, according to his humanity, interacts with the other persons of the Trinity, even, even the hypostatic union itself, that is reflected in the way that he brings salvation to us. Right. So the second Adam, right, Christ is adopted by the father, according to his humanity, because of his covenant faithfulness. So right. he becomes the son of God in the same way that Adam became the son of God by means of covenant faithfulness. Right. So so adoption by the father occurs in the son. It occurs to the son before it can occur in us uh, as a gift from the son. Right. So so even even that or the Holy Spirit, right, the Holy Spirit is present with the son beyond measure and he he is indwelling the son and he comes from the son and he unites the son to the father. And all of those things are true with how the spirit blesses us and unites us to God as well. So so if we if we get this wrong, if we get this understanding wrong and we somehow separate Christ's humanity off, so it's a separate a separate willing agent or a separate person, then all of that beautiful sort of artistic theology. And I mean, artistic in in the fact that it's, it's ascetic, it it looks good. It matches. It's, it's cohesive. It, it fits. All of that is gone. And, and the main thing that I learned as I was studying Athanasius that I brought with me as I came into a more fully orbed reformed understanding of salvation is that the, you know, the famous line in Athanasius is that the son of God became man so that man might become God. And, and you know, that's been distorted by later uh, Eastern Orthodox thinkers into a, an unhealthy understanding of theosis or of divinization. Um, but what it's really getting at is that the son of man took on human flesh. He, he became a man and he he obtained a relationship with the father by covenant faithfulness that he then gives to us and so he becomes what we are he and there's the first imputation he obtains righteousness and then he gives that to us and we become now what he is so he gives us by grace what he earned in light of his nature he he was right. the natural son of god and then he became the adopted second adam son of god and he grants to us that relationship as the adopted son of God, but he could only become the second Adam. He could only become the adopted son of God because he was eternally the natural son of God. 
So, so once we, once we separate that nature, we've broken that whole thing into pieces and none of that theology works anymore. So, so it's really, really critical because then this flows out into doctrines like ecclesiology, that the church can be in relation to God as the priesthood of all believers, because Jesus Christ as the second Adam was the ultimate high priest of our priesthood. But he can only do that if that that humanity of Christ is united with his divi- divinity in a single person. You know, when we get to talk about theology in this way, it always just leads me to the question, who is like our God? Because exactly. there is in God this beautiful symmetry, so to speak. There's only consistency. And right. there's no God who's doing this work. He's created us in such a way, and he's doing this work, like you said, that is in an expression of covenant faithfulness that is consistent at, at every level. And everywhere we turn, the deeper we go, we just see that not only is he incredibly faithful, but that it's incredibly meticulous and precise. And it is always um, consistent. That's the only word I can think yeah. of. And and you see like there's, God is like a, a minimalist, I would say, in the sense that he does what is always and only perfectly necessary and always good and never more. Like there's nothing superfluous yeah in the sense that everything that he's done is beautiful because it meets and satisfies the exact need without any, any excess because it would be, it's unnecessary. So here we have this reality that every sin of ours is so exceedingly sinful that it really can't be expiated by even the external destruction of a creature that, that even that wouldn't be sufficient. So here we need somebody who is God essentially, but also who is also truly man. So it's proper that, we have this punishment that we need to bear, but it's also proper that the punishment should be finite in respect to time because it was not necessary that, that a mediator should forever remain under death. So yeah. there's all this beauty that gets separated out when we go in this Nestorian direction. But it is maybe one of the, the worst things about heresy is not just that it sends us on the wrong path, but it destroys what is beautiful, what God yeah. has made for our good and to express his glory. And sometimes again, like we said before, we think we're protecting God by trying to fight against what we think are again, abuses of language without respect to understanding what that does to undermine what he has created and made for us that we might love and draw close to him by this expression of, like you said, kind of this, so I like the idea of like salvation being artistic in a sense, like, because it's, it should, it's its own beauty in a sense for beauty's sake. Right. And it's just a wonderful thing to behold. And as we talk, just in this conversation, it's amazing how trying to work backwards from here is heresy and why is this wrong inevitably should always lead us to doxology that says there is no God like our God. I mean, exactly. pick any, not just in terms of like relatively speaking um, with what we're talking about in the course of this conversation, but in terms of pick any kind of worldview, any kind of belief system, and you will not find the kind of covenant participation and love and consistency in the expression of character and then the outworking of atonement, forgiveness, regeneration, and salvation. You will not find that anywhere else. It just does not exist. And yet our hearts long for this very thing that we're talking about. And we are prone to wander in directions that will overpromise and underdeliver. So yeah. now I'm going to take a breath because it felt like I was about to like just straight launch into a sermon and given somehow give like the podcast equivalent of an altar call, which yeah. I, I definitely do not condone, but we it sounded like that. I was about to do that. Yeah. So I want to read a little bit out of the Westminster Confession. Um, and then I think that that settles. I mean, for me, that settles that this is a confessional 
position. But sure. I want to take a look at a couple of the proof texts that the Westminster uh, Confession uses, because this, you know, it's it's good for us to trust the confessional tradition that we're a part of, but it's not enough for us to rely on that unless we can also explain their biblical justification for it. So um, chapter eight, which is the section on Christ the Mediator, and uh, section seven says, Christ in the work of mediation acts according to both natures by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet by the reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. So let me break that down a little bit. So Christ, right? So the single person as the mediator. So in his state of incarnation, he acts according to both natures. So that means it's not as though the natures are acting, but Christ acts according to each nature. And he does that by each nature doing which is proper to itself. So so when he acts as a human, we've talked about this, we talk about him doing miracles. When he acts as a human, he's acting in a way that's appropriate for a human to act. So right. when he walks on the water, right, we have, and I've become more and more convinced that the fact that Peter and the fact that the gospel writer includes this, the gospel's writers includes this, is to actually guard partially against the idea that Christ was somehow hovering above the water because he was God. Right. He's not, right? He's walking on the water as a prophet and able to do a miraculous thing. And that's proven by the fact that Peter, also a prophet, isn't able to do the same miraculous thing by trusting in the Holy Spirit. So each nature acts in a way that's proper to itself. But in scripture, we have various places where we see that um, an act attributed or that is proper to one nature is spoken of by a title that's proper to the other nature. So that's where this all comes down to, right? The theotokos. It's not proper to say that God was born, but scripture gives us a precedent of talking that way. And here's a couple of the, the um, proof texts they use, right? Acts 20, 28 is kind of the classic one. Um, I'm reading out of the OPC's version of the confession, and I think this is probably King James, but I guess I don't know that for sure. It says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased by his own blood. So what we see there, this is Paul speaking, right? So this isn't, this isn't, no matter how you slice it, this isn't later reflection of the church on, um, on the incarnation. This is, this is Paul on the beach in Ephesus in like 60 or 65 AD, right? This is very early. And he talks about the church of God, which he, which God purchased with his own blood. So he's taking the, the, the fact that God is the one who did the purchasing, the single person who is the son. And then he talks about how he purchased it with his own blood. Well, what we have there is the title God and the phrase blood being used. Well, God doesn't have blood, right? According to divinity, there is no blood in the son. It's only according to humanity. But Paul right. doesn't seem to care all that much about delineating that. And so what, what frustrates me, and, and this is just a, a maybe a personal quibble, is anytime this conversation comes up, whether it's in reference to the Theotokos or whether it's in reference to like God died language or God was born language, when this, this issue comes up, there's always a cry by some people that we have to abandon this way of talking because it might lead to confusion. But frankly, 
the apostles didn't care that it might lead to confusion. And the Holy Spirit didn't care that it might lead to confusion because it communicates a central truth of our faith in a way that we can't really communicate concisely in any other way. And so, yes, there's a possibility of confusion, and that's why we should explain things carefully. But, you know, the fact the fact that um, the phrase theotokos is a little bit ambiguous as to what's meant by God is actually on purpose. And the right. reason for that is because it's trying to emphasize the fact that the person who was born of Mary is not God in a different way than the father, just God, right? We just, it's just God. There's no qualifier. There's no, um, there's no explanation because we don't put qualifiers on the way that the son is God. Because he's God in exact the same exactly the same way that the Son or the Father and the Spirit are God. There's no difference in the way they're God. So we have to be cautious not to sort of fall into this trap of endlessly qualifying things, because that's ultimately what Nestorius was trying to do, and it led him down the wrong path. Yes. Well said. Exactly. And that brings me kind of full circle to the Rachel Held Evans tweet. This right. idea of like trying to overqualify, try to understand or try to eisegete into the passage, which I think that's what ultimately happens is we just read ourselves in. For whatever exactly. reason, I've always been drawn to the story of Jesus walking on the water. I don't know what it is. Like I just have this, there's something about that account that's just special to me or resonates with me, or I think it would just is awesome. And um, I love what you said there because we find, I think, in the scriptures, this wonderful balance. And while, like we said, we can't necessarily point to chapter and verse that says, well, here's a clear explanation of this whole one person, two natures thing. So we can just settle it and here's the outline and you can take that away. Now you have perfect clarity. However, we do find that the scriptures are placing this coterminous emphasis on both of them, such that what you have the divines being able to speak out of that scripture and say that there are these two natures, again, in consummate harmony, acting, though, in accordance with each of the natures. And so going back to that story of Jesus walking on the water, there you're right. There is an absolute emphasis, I think, there of trying to, to basically point out that this is, this is Jesus, the man. He's, he is walking on the water. At the same time, one of the things I absolutely love about the way that Mark tells a story is that he says, when evening came, the boat was out in the sea, that is the disciples, and Jesus was alone on land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And this is the part that I find so interesting. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. Yeah. So this language, he meant to pass them by. That's very godly language. That's that's language used of God like in the Old Testament. That's God passing before his people or God passing over or by Moses when he hides him in the cleft of the rock. Right. So we have even here uh, in this account, this kind of expression again, this, this double emphasis that it's not either or, it's not separation. It is together without distinction. And yet they are two natures. And so yeah. I just find that again, so beautiful, like this, this wonderful little phrase he meant to pass them by how packed right. with meaning that is in a, as an expression of his divinity along with his humanity. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to look at one other passage and then we probably should, should sort of try to land the plane on something a little practical for how, how do we, how do we use this to protect ourselves from error? And this, this just underscores why it's so important to um, trust the wisdom 
not not unquestioningly, but to recognize that the the saints of the past, especially in the Reformed confessions, knew what they were doing. So in in all of the times that I've had this conversation, and and I've probably had this argument about the Theotokos, I've probably had this argument, no joke, like three hundred times over the last five years. It, it comes up perennially. It's it's constantly happening. And I've never encountered this text as a as a proof. So this is coming out of Luke um, chapter one, and I'm going to start with um, verse 35. It's a little bit longer, but I think there's a lot of payout on it. So this is the account of um, the angel coming to Mary, and he says, "And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will be overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God." And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now listen to this. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now what's important there is Mary is saying, I am the servant of the Lord. Now, there's really good reason to think that especially when, when God is in view in the Old or in the New Testament, that the word Lord, the word Kyrios in Greek, is actually a translation of the Greek word Yahweh. So, so Mary is not saying, um, I'm the servant of the master, or I'm the servant of someone who's over me. She's saying, I am a servant of Yahweh. So let it be to me, as Yahweh has said, because I am a servant of Yahweh. Then it goes on. In those days, Mary arose with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is prophetic utterance, right? This is not just some reflection. This is a prophetic utterance. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Right? So if we're, if we're understanding that Scripture interprets Scripture, it would be very strange for this passage to be using the word Lord in a completely different way without any kind of clarification. Right. So we can read this as, as Elizabeth saying, and why is this granted to me that the mother of Yahweh should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there uh, believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord, from Yahweh. So then, then Mary goes in, and we have a good reason to think this is also prophetic utterance. She says, "My soul magnifies Yahweh; my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior." So this is this is parallelism, right? Magnifies the Lord is parallel to God, my savior. So we have right in the, the, the very birth narrative of Christ, the Holy spirit has provided us with, I think almost undisputable proof that the prophetically it is okay to say that Mary is the mother of God, not even just God, the generic title, but it's very likely that uh, Elizabeth here acting under the influence and the inspiration of the Holy spirit as a prophet says, why is this granted to me that the mother of Yahweh should come to me? Now, if there's if there is something that strikes the Jewish ear any crazier than that, I don't know what it is. But that's that's the incarnation, right? That is the truth. The mother of Yahweh. That is the truth that flipped the Jewish religion on its head and made it Christianity. 
That's the truth that went from a vague notion of some sort of plurality in Elohim in the Old Testament to the fully orbed doctrine of the Trinity that we see in the New Testament. So it is absolutely vital that we get this right because the Bible gets it right. The Bible teaches it. And so we don't have the liberty to say, well, we should be wiser than the Holy Spirit. We should be wiser right. than, than Elizabeth acting under inspiration. We should be wiser than Paul acting under inspiration. That is impious nonsense. And so we just have to be really cautious when we take that line of thinking that we don't avoid something that the scripture in many ways commands us to teach, right? Paul commands Timothy to read the word and to preach the word in season and out of season. What are you going to do when you come to this passage and you do your exegesis and you see that Elizabeth is saying the mother of Yahweh here? That's that You have to really distort that if you want to avoid those implications, and then you're not rightly dividing the word. Right. Yeah, there's no doubt that I think that this is a very clear passage in terms of yeah. trying to help us understand Mary's position with respect to Jesus and to God for that matter. Exactly. And so you're right. The funny thing is, not funny, haha, but like funny, ironic, is that, you know, in terms of the reform perspective, this is what we want in the sense that like this is consistent with our understanding of soteriology and atonement. And this is what you want. So it, it does strike me as odd for those that really push back strongly on that. Because again, it does seem like you're trying to create a higher standard beyond God. And he's saying, I've, right. I've made it somewhat clear for you here in this passage exactly. that uh, Mary is the mother of God. It's almost as if I feel like in my own life, he's saying to me, trust me, you want it this way. Th this, is, this is the hinge on which so much turns. You yeah. don't want to pull out that pin. Yeah. So, so maybe let's, um, let's take the last couple minutes we have left of the, the show today and just talk about some like practical things that we see in our life, some practical errors that we make that a proper understanding of the incarnation opposing the Storianism helps us to avoid. I've this, I know some people are going to again, like throw their devices at the wall, but I've got to go back to the whole second commandment thing, especially because yeah. we're about to enter the Christmas season. And in, in part, because based on what we've kind of built up here, and the foundation we're trying to, to bring forward as a base on which to stand so that we can all understand what the scriptures say. I'm just, the older I get, the more I think about it. It's just no small thing. And I know that some people will bristle at the fact that they feel that images of Jesus are really not harmful. Uh, I think we, we need to sit under the weight of scripture on that one and let scripture be the one to judge whether they're harmful or not, right. regardless of how we feel about them. Even regardless of whether we use them as an expression of our fidelity to Christ in terms of being able to show our neighbors because we have the crush on the front lawn. Right. I think we just, it's something that is time for us to really re-examine and understand why we use the images, why we rely on them and whether or not they are harmful in our conception of who Christ is and how we understand him and how we think about him. Yeah. Because the, the scriptures are so clear that we are to basically apprehend things by faith and as we talked about before, that beatific vision is something that we look forward to as the culmination of Christ's work in our lives. And to even put it forward one day uh, with something that is a, a cheapened representative of that beatific vision is, I think, just inappropriate. So that that's basically one of the things we can save us from being a historian is, I think, really trying to evaluate whether or not we should participate in those images and um, whether or not we should really put them out of sight and out of away from us. Yeah. What do you got? You know, 
for me, one of the things that, um, you know, Reform Forum just had this conference um, on Thomas Aquinas and Karl Barth and Voss, and they call it the Deeper Protestant Conception. And one of the things that struck me that I think they did an excellent job, and I'll, I'll bring this back around to what we're talking about, is they did a really good job demonstrating how both Aquinas and Barth, their theology and the places that their theology goes squirrely is rooted in a an improper anthropology. And so for Aquinas... Um, and the, really the Roman Catholic tradition as a whole, the problem that creatures face, the problem that men face, is not um, sin. It's not It's not that we're at enmity with God. It's that we're finite. It's that we're creatures. And so a, a finite reality can't um, receive an infinite reality. And so for Aquinas, um, salvation is about reproportioning the human nature to be a, a proper receptacle to receive the divine nature. Well, this this theology, this hypostatic union theology, mitigates against that error because even Christ, when he was when when the divine nature was united to the human nature of Christ, even in that situation, the human nature of Christ remains completely and fully human. And so in our union with Christ, and ultimately that brings us into union with the Father by the Spirit, we're not being brought to a place where um our human nature is somehow made not human anymore, but it's actually in that union that our humanity finds its fullest expression in the union with God. Right. So that's question one of the, of the Westminster larger catechism that we, we fully glorify and enjoy God in that union with Christ as humans, as fully human. And so getting this understanding, right. Guards against that idea that somehow we become more than human. And on the flip side, it's, it's arguable that, that part of what Karl Barth was going after is that we actually sort of become Christ. We become, we become God in a different sense because there's a collapsing or there's, a, there's an inappropriate collapsing of those two natures in Christ and an inappropriate Trinitarian theology that we actually become God in a sense where we no longer are our distinct individual selves, but we are now Christ in Christ. So so that this also says that the distinctness of our humanity, the distinctness of Christ's humanity is not lost. Neither, neither is the human nature changed, but the distinctness of that human nature is not lost in the incarnation either. So so Jesus is a distinct human person who will always be, you know, a first century Palestinian Jewish man. Right. That that is who Jesus is and forever will be. He has an origin as a human. He has an origin in time in a particular cultural situation, and that will forever be a part of his personhood. Now, that is not to say that that he is beyond that and has grown beyond that and is beyond that as the second Adam, because he represents all of us. But that distinctness of his human nature, even the, the culturally temporally located distinctness of it. He's always going to be named Jesus, right? That's not a that's not a Norwegian name. It's not an English name. That's a Jewish name, Joshua, right? Yeshua. So also on our eschatology, we remain not only fully human, but our distinct selves in our humanity. And so that mitigates against all sorts of eschatological errors that we run into, ranging from you know, a full on um, Gnosticism in which we kind of like recede back into the one, right? There's new age Christian theology coming out of like Oprah and like Deepak Chopra, that kind of new age synthesis with Christianity that's just warmed over Gnosticism. It protects us against that. 
and it protects us against this weird like sitting on clouds playing harps theology that denies that we, we're fully human in the eschaton. So I think, you know, looking at our eschatology and understanding it in light of the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's a way to help us really protect, especially as we get into like Christmas season right. and we start to like think about angels in weird squirrely ways and like how people become, you know, every time a, you know, a bell rings and angel gets its wings. Well, that kind of weird nonsense, like this theology protects us against a lot of that eschatology. Right, right on. I totally agree with that. I mean, this is actually probably a good time of year to practice some of this. Yeah. And, and I would say one of the best ways we can do that is when we're reading the scriptures, when we're interacting in the Christmas sphere and being bombarded by all kinds of things, and a lot of misunderstanding this time of year, yeah. is to take a moment when we are approaching uh, the, the text or when we're thinking about Jesus and we're tempted, so to speak, to isolate his nature to actually take a step back and stop. And even if we don't understand it to, to almost have the conscious processing to say like, here we have the, the beautiful son of God who is truly God and truly man. And though I maybe do not understand it here, I'm not going to attribute one particular thing and say, well, it's this nature that's reacting here separate and apart from or distinct from anything else um, that we're going to, even if again, we, this is just baffling to us that we're kind of going to just, fall on our knees under the weight, so to speak, if, if only in our hearts and say like, God, aren't you so great? Like let yeah. this lead us to praise and to worship instead of really trying to be super, you know, like super spiritual and smart people who are going to parse out all the details and try to explain everything away. Uh, I don't know that that's often or always healthy. And so I think that we're going to get a lot of opportunity in the next several months to kind of exercise that kind of discipline yeah. and that kind of thoughtfulness as we come to a, you know celebrating the incarnation we we just I, what's funny is we just tend to make it very small when we do that and yeah. it's it's so much bigger than that yeah so before we end i want to loop back to the rachel held evans nonsense that we started with let's do because it. because although this wasn't directly related to this element of christology it is in a roundabout way exactly so in order for rachel held evans um, articulation of what that story means or that account means to be true. What we have to have is is God, not not God taking on a an impersonal human nature and adding it to Himself, but an actual sinful, fallible human person yes, and adding exactly. that person to Himself. And so, what what Rachel either that or maybe Jesus isn't God at all. But right, I don't think that worse. Rachel Held Evans has gone that far into liberalism. She still has enough of her kind of evangelical holdovers that I'm not sure she's gone quite that far yet. But the proper answer to this is that Jesus, as a culturally located human person, sinlessly applies the the understanding of the Bible that he, you know, was correct in, that salvation, his mission was to the Jews and not to the Gentiles. But so he kind of he kind of responds to this woman in sort of a, an ad hoc um, parable or sort of an ad hoc proverb, right? He says, um, it's not proper to feed the dogs the children's bread, right? That's kind of, it, it's not okay to give to this group what was properly set aside for that group. That's that's essentially what he says to her. And he uses he uses kind of cultural language that, um, that was appropriate for the day and, and it communicated what it was. The same way that we might say like a dog returns to its vomit. So a fool returns to his volley, right? That's a biblical proverb. You're not necessarily saying that the person who is returning to their error is actually a dog, 
right? You're saying something different. You're using an example from the, the animal kingdom to apply to a situation. And the response of this woman is actually a, a really faithful response that proves that she understood the Bible. She understood right. the Old Testament. And that's the beauty of it is she responds with her own variation of that same ad hoc proverb, or maybe it wasn't even ad hoc. Maybe that was a common proverb of the day, but she responds with her own proverb and says, well, even the dogs feed from the scraps at the master's table. And so what he says to her is my mission is not to the Gentiles, it's to the Jews. And it's not proper to give to the Gentiles uh, what is for the Jews. And she essentially says, you're going to give it to the Gentiles eventually anyway. So why not give me a sneak peek? Right. Give me a little bit of the scraps. There's more than enough. Exactly. And he says, you have great faith. And he gives her what she asks for. So this, instead of, instead of God taking on a fallible human, human man who changed his mind and was sinful and was failing and, and didn't understand the scriptures and had to come to this new knowledge of himself. Instead, what we have is a beautiful picture of, of the son of God who learned about himself, according to humanity from the scriptures, applying that scripture and then recognizing the the next application of scripture or the fullness of scripture that of course he understood recognizing that and rewarding a person for also recognizing that there's no error in what Christ says instead he's he's testing this woman and she passes this test and she essentially lays hold to the messianic promise for the gentiles in advance and he grants her that the same way that Abraham saw his day and rejoiced, you know, proleptically way in advance. She saw the son's day in terms of post Pentecost and rejoiced and she was rewarded for it. So right. it's important that we get that right because Christology drives this, whether we know it or not, Christology drove Rachel held Evans error and it, it drives understanding the text properly. If we don't get it right, we get it all wrong. Exactly. And just quickly, like lay that up against what she's presenting as like an alternative ex explanation of that passage right. and, and see that it is like just entirely, not only off base, but so much less. Right. right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's just a red herring and I'm not, I'm not debating that there are serious racial issues in our world where we desperately need reconciliation and the love of Jesus Christ. However, what's happening here is just, it's just not what's going on there. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, pales in comparison to what you've just explained is actually happening in that text. It's adventure yep. and missing the point altogether. And that's what heresy is a lot of times. It's an yep. adventure in missing the point that becomes incredibly dangerous, pulls us away from what God has for us by the power of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures yep. to a place that is lesser, that is cheaper, and that is certainly less satisfying and you know does not give God glory. Yeah. And one last tie-in, right? I mentioned earlier that Nestorianism and Pelagianism have this strange connection. And Arianism actually has the same connection. And the, this, is, this is the connection, is that Nestorius, because he believed that in part the incarnation was the taking on of a concrete human particular that is somehow outside of the person of Christ, right? The, the specifics of how that is, that's debatable. But this concrete human particular is outside of the person of, of the Son, and is added to the person of the son. He also believed that this, this concrete human particular did not bring us salvation, but instead showed us how to return to God. And so we follow in his footsteps. We follow in the trail that he blazed and we walk our way back to God following his example. 
Well, that's Pelagianism, right? And, and it's a little known fact of history that Nestorius actually sheltered Pelagius when he was being sought out um, and being tried for heresy. Nestorius gave him shelter. And this is where Rachel Held Evans comes in. Liberalism as a whole is just warmed over Pelagianism. Right. And so Rachel Held Evans takes this, takes this, this uh, pericope and says, look at the great example that Jesus shows us, right? If you can just learn to change your perspective, just like Jesus did, then you can be saved from your racial prejudices, just like Jesus was. If you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you can get your work, your way back to God, all on your own merit and your own strength, you just have to try hard enough. Well, that's Pelagianism. That's Nestorianism. That's Arianism. All of the Christological heresies follow this same trajectory. Instead of, instead of God becoming man to rescue man and bring man back to God, it's God becoming man or somehow God providing a pattern for man so man can pull himself up by his own bootstraps. That's Rachel Held Evans right there. That's liberalism right there. Right. And that's why liberalism is a different religion. It's not just a, a variation of Christianity. It's a different religion entirely. Because that's a, like a direct attack, for instance, on the atonement. I mean, that's like exactly. governmental theory of you know, atonement. So, it, yeah, it's it's wild. It, that's why I was just floored to kind of come across that on the day that we we're recording, because it's just so contemporary. Not that we've yep. ever doubted that, but it is just so prevalent. Yep. Yeah. Well, I think this has been the definitive uh, anti-Nestorian, <laughs> anti-liberalism, anti-dispensationalism we threw it in there. I yeah, mean, what we did. did. We, what else did we affirm against here? Listen, we got it just all. We're, we're we pretty did. much, we will just hit everybody. Yes. So we have one more heresy cast that's going to be coming up. We're going to talk about Donatism. Um, and that's going to be a really interesting one. So catch that next month. And Jesse, we're going to have question cast coming up. So what's that phone number? We got question cast coming. So leave us a voicemail at 607-444-2767. Bros. And I don't know if we've mentioned it before, but if you go to reformedbrotherhood.com and you've missed some of the other heresy casts that we've done, because there's been several of them, they're all cataloged there. You can just use the drop down menu and select heresy cast and get yep. the full back catalog of all the wonderful conversations about heresies. That's true. It is true. Although I'm not great at, at tagging and categorizing the website, that's the one thing that I think I've succeeded at is setting heresy casts aside. You can go there and find some. Of the conversations about heresies that we've had. <laughs> yes. Now I have to go and fix all of them. Thanks, Jesse. Pressure's on. Sorry about Pressure's that. Pressure's on. That's all good. Well, I think that this has been great. I, like I said, I think you're spot on that this is a heresy that just, it, it, has, it has feet in our world and it has feet in our own theology that we don't realize. And we have to just knock those feet out from underneath it with good biblical language. Put away the baby Jesus. Exactly. Put it away. Get rid Put of it. Put it away. Don't don't go smashing other people's stuff though. We don't want to do that. Don't like don't like go to town and be the guy that steals the baby Jesus because just don't do that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and that's what I mean. Like that's one of those things that I really think you you really need to uh, process and study for yourself. Yeah. And yeah. and do lots of good reading and have lots of good conversations. Bring other trusted brothers and sisters into the dialogue there, but certainly don't shy away from it just because you bristle against it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jesse, why don't you bring us home and and sign us off here? Wow, that was like a a lot of setup there. Yeah. (laughs) I'm trying to land this plane, Jesse. You got to help me. (laughs) All right, here we go. We're going down. You're my co-pilot. Until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh